That's okay. And you happen to say, oh, look, there's one of them I can. It, but you showing but universal showing art. art. Said, uh, it would be a, an iffy. Make sure. Hello, hello. Making sure my audio. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. I guess if you want to lead with. Uh, well, I mean. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, thanks so much for talking to us about this, man. Because this is this is one of the, the the big projects that like I know fandom really wants to know more about. I know I did. Um, and, uh, so I was wondering, I think we should probably just start uh, like at the origin of this version of, of, of the project. Like what, um, I, I know that in the timeline of what you were doing, um, it kind of came after you were on Hobbit and then, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, it was actually yeah. the, the project I landed right after the Hobbit. Yeah. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, I was, I met with Jim Cameron right after the, returned from New Zealand, and he said, uh, why don't you do Battle Angel? Mm. You know, we had talked about it a long, long time. And uh, I read the draft he had. I made my own pass, even. Mm. And, uh, but Battle Angel was so Jim's thing, because, you know, it, it went back to the days around 94, 95, when... I, I used to stay at his house in Malibu, and uh, we would watch anime. Mm. And I remember him showing me Pat Labor mm. on Laserdisc. Yeah. And then I said, "Oh, you gotta see this Laserdisc of a movie called Battle Angel." And we saw it together back in the day. Mm. And uh, he he's, he liked it, but he loved it so much secretly that he got the rights. And then he said, "Why don't you do it?" And I said, "Sure." But he he had. It had become an obsession for me. Mm. Like he, he had read all the books. He had ambitioned it as a saga. And uh, as I was developing this with him, back from The Hobbit, I said, you know what? You, you seem to absolutely get it. And I think that I'd rather do movies that will not get made without me. Mm. This movie will get made with someone one day. And I said, I'd rather do Mountains of Madness, which was frozen already, because mm. uh, I started developing it, uh, I don't know, like 97, 95, I don't know. Yeah. So he, he, he said, oh, sure, you know, I'll co-produce it with Don Murphy, Susan Monfort, and myself. Yeah. And we went on to, uh, to present it. I mean, at, at that point, um, you know, Tom Cruise had seen Pan's Labyrinth and loved it, and we became friends. And he wanted to read anything I had. He read The Strain in Galley, mm -hmm. The Strain books in Galley, and he loved them. And then he said, what else? And I sent him Monte Cristo, and he <laughs> loved it. And then I, he said, what else? And I said, I sent him Mountains of Madness, and he loved it. And he said, which one of these do you want to do? And I said, well, I think you would be perfect for mountains because uh, everybody's used to you winning the day and it would be great for you to actually be part of a doomed <laughs> expedition <laughs> where nobody nobody wins. Yeah. And I, he loved that idea and 
I told Jim and Jim said that's fantastic and then we went shopping with the movie. Now, I mean, we should go back to just your adoration of Lovecraft. Yeah. Uh, period because without without that you I mean it seems like that it, it's been it's so ingrained in your uh, in your uh, uh visual style and you know in the st- your your personal fetish- fetishes and stuff that you like you know you can trace so much of that back to Lovecraft. So it, what what age did you were you were 11 when you first read this one was this oh, the first one that you read? No, the first one I read was uh, what is it called in in English, The Outsider. Mm. And The Outsider, I read, uh, my brother had, I mean, I, I, I was a voracious reader, and uh, I think I may have read something else, but didn't make an impression, because I'm pretty sure he was included in the Corey Ackerman anthology, mm. he probably was. But I, I read, the first one that made an impression was The Outsider, and it was, curiously enough, in my brother's literature uh, book, school text, he he was older than me by two years, and I was I would read anything that was near. I mean, I read my my parents' entire library. I read uh, anything at any moment. And my brother, we were coming back from school, and uh, it was a summer. I was probably I don't know, like around ten or nine, yeah. you know. And uh, he left his book uh, in the car, and I. As we were going, the driver would pick my brother up, my sister up, myself up, and uh, we would go to the house. And then uh, along the way, uh, I grabbed my brother's book and I started browsing. And I saw this illustration that was really creepy for the outsider. And I started reading. And everybody, we arrived to the house. Everybody went out of the car, went into the house. I stayed in the car. without air conditioner and I started sweating and I kept reading I kept reading and I, by the end of the story I thought this is this is the best writer I've ever read <laughs> I was super enthusiastic and I I just wanted to know more about Lovecraft and I went book shopping I found a couple of volumes fortunately for me in the 70s early 70s Lovecraft was having a resurgence mm-hmm. by a very good translators in Barcelona and in uh, Argentina, and so there were a lot of books available on love in Spanish, a lot. It was a golden time for science fiction publishing and horror fiction publishing in, in Spanish language. And uh, I, I then read, you know, all the short stories. I, it was a beautiful, beautiful book uh, compiling the Cthulhu mythos mm-hmm. that included all the precursors, Lord Donsany, William Hope Hudson, Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Macken. You know, it was a really good book. And then it compiled uh, and organized the myths because they were never really organized officially. Yeah. It was like a circle of people like Robert Bloch or Robert E. Howard, uh, Lovecraft, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, that kind of riffed on these things, you know. But Lovecraft never quite made it a, a Lovecraft verse, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah. it was, and this book organized them. And then, in the introduction, they talked about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, they talked about that epic scale existing in Lovecraft's novella, at the Mountains of Madness. Mm-hmm. So I went and looked at the Mountains of Madness, and I got it, and and I read it, and 
It was beautiful because, you know, I had read La Dracula and Frankenstein, which in some form are both epistolary novels. You know, they are, especially Dracula is cribbed from documents, you know, letters, diary entries, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that I was reading uh, the literary equivalent to sort of uh, a documentary, you know, mm -hmm. it was it was like a National Geographic exploration meets horror. Lovecraft was incredibly precise about using cutting science fiction. Uh, I mean, using science. And he was incredibly precise about exactly how the Dornier planes, which were German planes, were assembled. They were super light planes that you could disassemble the wings and fold them. And they were made of aluminum. Uh, they were the lightest planes. They were used in Antarctic exploration. He knew how they folded. He knew how many would fit in a ship. He really, really did. How many dogs would be on a sled? How many dogs would a ship accommodate? So all that was fascinating to read. And uh, I, I, I remember I wanted to see it as a movie. Not mm. make it yet. I was too young. Yeah. But I said, I, I would love to see this movie. I mean, you're right. It's incredibly precise. Like, um, uh, you know, he uses very specific, you know, like uh, biological, you know, terminology, and you know, in the autopsy, the fossils, and, and the fossils, the 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 the, 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 the samples, using, the, sample, the drill samples, yeah. the drill samples. He's very precise about how those are done. Yeah, he's accurate, technically accurate. All before the internet, so he yeah. actually knew this. <laughs> well, he he, and that well, that's the reason this house exists because mm. I I really like try not to Google. Yeah, I try to go to the books and read. Mm. You know? One of the things that I found going to going to school for anthropology was that he held up uh, all these years later in terms of the the science and the precision of everything uh, was was staying really close to the way that he told the story part of part of your initial conception of how you wanted to make it as a movie or the the version that is is what most recently almost happened at universal is it is it more toward that end or is it closer to a stricter adaptation of the novella no the novella the novella for it to exist it would it, it, it would be possible but it would be the most expensive uh mockumentary <laughs> ever made you know it yeah. would be really a mixture, uh, I think that it can be made for for a different scale. And I actually am considering starting from scratch yeah. in the near future and do a new screenplay um, openly, you know. But at the same time, uh, to do that, that would be the version that would be the most faithful. Hmm. It would be the one that, that would be closest to the book. Uh, but then you got to do it for very little to keep the style of it arid mm. the book is very arid and out of that uh, sort of um, almost aloof position towards the horror when the horror emerges it's really shocking so is is the is this veneer the veneer of reality is what gives the the book its yeah no it's a very desolate book mm -hmm. you know you you do you feel you feel the vastness of of the ice, and you feel yeah, uh, you know, in a weird way. Like um, I think the witch recently kind of tapped into that feeling, but with the frontier, you know, with the the openness, anything could be out there. In a way, yeah. I mean, I think 
I think that's where that's why the Wendigo, the Algernon Blackwood story, mm -hmm. or or the Willows, you know, these are things that evoke the vast indifference of nature. Yeah, you know, and but also the terror, Robert McCammon's The Terror, which mm -hmm. Ridley Scott just turned into a TV series. That I always thought the terror was almost a riff on Mountains of Madness. Mm -hmm. you know? But who goes there? Campbell. Very much, yeah. No, it's uh, it's funny, you know, rereading the story. Um, uh, just you know, I, I didn't realize as a kid how much uh, Carpenter kind of took a lot of because a lot of what's in his movie isn't so much in the original Howard Hawks production, right? It, it's a it's a lot more, um, you know, the Shagoth. You know, it's a lot more that kind yeah. of kind of creature. Well, I I I much prefer the Carpenter. Yeah, because to me. Obviously, it caught me on the line. Yeah. But to me, it also... People still, to this day, complain about the characters, and I, I'm amazed at them because they are great characters. Yeah, who's yeah. complaining? Let's go kick their ass. Some, <laughs> people, some people complain about it still, that they that all the characters are interchangeable. What? And I'm amazed. They're not yeah. watching the movie. Yeah. No. Have a seat, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I well, we should talk about this this particular version that you were. You want coffee? No. Oh, actually, on on the in in the in the original novella itself, were there specific things visually that you seized on as as things that that you wanted to portray as faithfully to the novella as you could, and things that you felt you needed to run in exactly the opposite direction and do something different with visually? Well, I mean, there are moments that are sort of the landmarks of the novella that you want to preserve. Mm. I mean, I, I always, I, what I did is I, when I was preparing it, I, I started working with Gahan Wilson, who is a Lovecraft expert, and I said to Gahan, what are the moments that you think we must hear? You know, and we made a little list, and he, we were just riffing as friends, you know, He's an illustrator I admire tremendously, and he said, uh, well, I would love to see the moment when they're autopsying the humans, the old ones, you know, because ultimately they are scientists, you know, and they are curious, and they were autopsied mm -hmm. themselves by the humans, so they're vivisecting the human in the, <laughs> in the, in the, and it's a really horrific moment, and then we talked about, uh, obviously, the introduction of the Shoggoths, I mean, the shoggoths for a lot of people would be now carpenters, the thing. Mm -hmm. But that's what they are. I mean, they can shape shift. Then I added another layer that was not in the, in the book. And in fact, uh, we were able to sustain the, one of the things that was very unfriendly for many of the drafts of the movie is that there was uh, the love story, so to speak, was a love story between friends, between colleagues. Mm -hmm. It was a, a group of scientists that were truly, uh, they have this camaraderie, you know, which was what, what happened in the, which is what I love about the thing, the Carpenter's thing, mm -hmm. that is a story of friendship. I, I think that there is an ambiguous element to the ending that a lot of people misread in the, I feel that the beauty ending of the thing is that they both know that either the other guy is the or that they maybe even be the thing because the 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 uh, existential question in carbon is 
the thing not only replicates it, not only replicates this, not only replicates an organ, can talk like it. It'd be his the, personality. Exactly. So, therefore, the, the, the ontological question is, uh, can the thing replicate the soul? Mm -hmm. Is the thing aware that it is the thing? Yeah. You know? And that's, that's the, 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 the moment at the end is, you could be the thing and not know it. Mm -hmm. And maybe what kicks up is a, is a hardwired thing, a defense mechanism, you know, the way mm -hmm. a dog, you can pet a dog all your life but never try to fuck with his foot. Yeah. Or its foot, you know, because yeah. it will growl. Yeah. It's, it's a hardwired thing. Yeah. So maybe you don't know you're the thing. Yeah. Maybe you're not trying to deceive. Maybe you think it is ridiculous. Maybe that's the ultimate mm. defense mechanism of the thing. Being so sure that you're not, you know, and you kind of see that in Carpenter's movie too. When I when he it's when a, uh, it's a complete master. Yeah, yeah. When he, uh, I'm now blanking on the character's name and feeling awful. Uh, but when the the power, the gun is offered to the one that actually is the thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When it actually is offered to him, and he just says, says "I don't want it." I don't want it. You know, it's like if he was a thing. And he, the ultimate goal was to be, you know, you could say that he was, that's an ultimate form of camouflage, but I think that it's more interesting to say that, you know, that the, that was Norris's. Well, that's my, my analysis yeah. of the thing is that, and then I, yeah. I read, I read a beautiful piece by, by in the New Beverly website by Kim Morgan, mm -hmm. in which she said, well, uh, the ending is beautiful because at the end of the day, even if one of them is the thing, they don't want to be alone, mm. you know? Yeah. They don't want to be alone. <laughs> they both know they're going to die. The thing and the human, whoever it is, they both know they're going to die. I mean, I think that's the ultimate injustice when somebody creates not a good movie, not a great movie, but a fucking masterpiece, and it gets ignored. Mm. Or, even worse, booed mm. and vilified. Because I, I was... Uh, of enough age to remember uh, even the genre magazine panning the thing. Yeah. I remember the review in Cine Fantastique. I may remember it wrong, but I, I think it read something like, the carpenter sacrifices all for uh, to the altar of gore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so misguided. And now, I, you know, I've told this anecdote before. I, I had uh, in one dinner, one of the masters of horror dinners that we had early on, I, I told John, uh, I said, um, you must feel really vindicated because now the thing is regarded as a masterpiece. He says, what fucking good does, it, that, does that do to me? Yeah. And he's right. As a filmmaker, I, I've done movies that I adore that for one reason or another, they didn't connect with the side guys. They went by the wayside. wayside. And it, you never recuperate. You never recuperate. You never go, oh, well, everybody likes it now. No, no, no. no. Yeah, there's always that little, that little feeling. Um, yeah, because it impacts what you can make next. It impacts. It's beyond that. I mean, yeah. it truly, imagine that you are, I mean, you, uh, I say it many times, you know, for a critic, uh, a, a writer, or an audience, these are... Uh, Movies, yeah. For you, is a biography, mm. and there's no way you can tell me that you didn't like the last three years of my life. Mm. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way I can accept it. I mean, <laughs> I can accept it as an opinion, but I cannot accept it at, a, at an existential level. No. 
because it took is the port of the Dorian Gray in reverse. Yes, you know, uh, we are the portal in the attic, and our movies are the living, the living creature. Um, no, no, that and that's beautiful. Um, and sad. It, it is. It is. But then you know the. Uh, then you also get it though when it does connect. Then then you feel like you're kind of sharing. Of course, that's why you keep doing it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're a masochist. Yeah. So do you do you think that something like Mountains of Madness would have connected, or do you think that it was? I mean, I obviously it it means something to you. It means something to to us. But that's the beauty of the thing. Yeah. You don't care. Yeah. See, that's the paradox. Interesting. You care when they're done, but you don't care when you're making them. Yeah. What uh, what part of it? What part of it were you most hoping to impact people, to shock people, to surprise people? You know, the, the uh, I, I we we started we started really playing with surreal horror in the script, and uh, I mean the creatures that we were attempting have never been seen, have to this day never been seen uh, on any medium. Uh, Guy Davis. Uh, and I illustrated a couple of the scenes with the storyboards. They were very shocking. I mean, they were shocking. Now they were. It was not a gory movie, and it was very much about impossibility. You know, about the scope of the thing. You know, when you landed the plane in the ruins and you saw the size of the ruins and the fact that you think ergonomically the city was designed for walking cucumbers <laughs> and fly, <laughs> flying cucumbers. Yeah. So ergonomically, when you talk about steps, they're hardly steps. You know, Lovecraft describes it in a way that is too human, in my opinion. He was inspired by the paintings of Rurich, mm-hmm. you know. But the paintings of Rurich have these concrete forms that are very much ergonomically designed by humans, meaning we are bipeds. We need a certain step in, 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 in using a staircase, correct? We fit through a door frame. Uh, our living spaces are designed for our size. Mm-hmm. Roughly six foot tall. Mm-hmm. You know, roughly a foot and a half wide. Mm-hmm. You know? Roughly. Roughly. Some of us <laughs> really on, but what I mean is, what, the exercise we were making is, okay, what would a city be? What would a window be? Mm-hmm. For a flying, sliding, crawling cucumber. Well, I mean, it's already weird when you like go and you see like sets that were built for you know in the twenties and thirties for people who are much shorter, mm-hmm. and the doorways are shorter and the windows are de- closer to the ground. And there's already a feeling of unease I get when I go around that, and that's and yeah. that seems like you're taking that would have been the next. I remember crazy level. one of the artifacts I bought in Canada was uh, a denture from a soldier. Made him ivory, uh, and then uh, fake dentures from a soldier in Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. They were almost the size of a child, and this was an adult soldier. When you buy boots or bayonets, or you know, from people from the 19th century, you see they were incredibly small. Yeah. Small so people. the large people are natural evolution. We're the real X Men. Yeah, but but, but 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 uh, <laughs> but what I mean is, when we were designing, we were designing to. To say, okay, what's a doorway for one of, of course. these things? Yeah. What's a plaza? Why would they need a plaza? So we were design- we designed a thing I called the kitchen, hmm. which was really nightmarish. <laughs> you know, because how would they cook? What would they eat? You know? Uh, I mean, this, uh, and the thing is, um, very, I was very aware that uh, Alien, the first Alien, 
was very much a race for Nantes or not. Uh, it's a ship, on an, uh, in this case, not an exploration, but it's a ship transporting, it's a tanker, mm -hmm. right? Gets an SOS, goes to an abandoned city slash spaceship, mm -hmm. sees that a shape-shifting alien killed its masters. Mm -hmm. There is, in the original screenplay and the original movie, there was a mural, exactly like in the novel, mm -hmm. explaining how the creatures rebelled and killed the masters. Then they find the creature, and then it becomes alien. Yeah. You know, but the, 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 the very setup is very much Mantis of Madness. And then came Prometheus, and uh, when I heard the name, I didn't know anything about the blood. I knew. Okay. Oh, my God, that's Mantis of Madness. Yeah. They're going to have created life on Earth. Yeah. Which is the punchline. Of course. Spoilers ahead. <laughs> now, the punchline of the novel is they created man as a joke. Uh, and I thought, well, that's out of the bag. I, I then saw the movie, and I think the mountains can still be made. Yeah. But, but the whole point of uh, the, this Ridley Alien universe is to keep riffing on that. Yeah, well, one of my favorite aspects of the story and, and what you did in, in the draft that I read anyway um, uh it, it's you have the monsters which you know the tentacle you know faces and you have all that stuff that people people know but the thing that like is the most disturbing to me is how is how time is different yeah there and to me that's like the stuff that really stuck with me where they you know they go to sleep one night and then they wake up and it's been like what a month yeah a month and they're all haggard and gaunt and everybody's like what the hell just happened well yeah the you know? the, the, the idea was if these guys use time as a tool yeah i mean if they are indeed godlike Okay, yeah. they would they would use time. They would be use they would be able to use time. Mm. So imagine that you have a, a reservoir of time to use an analog an analogy, mm -hmm. and it broke because there was a rebellion, and now there's a spilled uh, time continuum distortion that is erratic. So you could be facing a creature, and you close your eyes, you blink for one second, and you blink for a week. Yeah, you're out. Yeah. And it really was a really good source of horror. Well, Hard to portray in any other type well, of movie. Well, and you did something interesting, which I'm I'm not sure if it was in the book. I don't think it was. Um, where they were, it was using the time. The ice kept trapping the, yeah, the uh, the Arkham, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's not in the book. Yeah, because because as fast as they were breaking it, the time, you yeah. know, was so sped up that they yeah. were breaking it. and It was instantly yeah. reforming, mm -hmm. and they were trapped in front of their eyes. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found interesting about the way that you, you created this kind of quantum bubble chunk of Antarctica that exists but doesn't exist is that it, it, it paves over the issues that we have being 80 years later, and that entire area has been explored, it's been scouted. They, they end up in this, this thing that could, in our space, take up a, a fragment of a crack, mm -hmm. uh, you know, using an Einstein-Rosen bridge to go to this other world place. Well, there was there was also the uh, what what always intrigued me is the um, the anecdote of Admiral Byrd uh, flying into a tropical zone in Antarctica, which has been documented. Some people say it, say it was a fugue of uh, of the mind that happened when oxygen was too low. But Admiral Byrd, a thoroughly respected mm -hmm. explorer, uh, you know. Uh, related that he was flying in Antarctica and he basically all of a sudden found himself in a bubble in Antarctica that was completely tropical. Yeah. 
and that then he flew out of it and he was never able to locate it. Mm. So, you know, I, I always thought that's interesting because uh, Charles Ford used to posit in his books, uh, essentially in a very quiet way, he used to say the world is much stranger than we give it credit. And myself having experienced uh, twice a ghostly oral, you know, oral in terms of sound. I don't want to. Not Dan Aykroyd and Ghostbusters. I don't want to get my accent to sound <laughs> disrespectful. <you know? laughs> a, a, a ghost encounters where I heard ghosts twice. And having seen one UFO in my life, mm -hmm. I know the world is a stranger yeah. than, than we think. And, and I think that that was the thing about the um, screenplay on mountains was the arrogance. The arrogance of the the main antagonist, one of the explorers, believed science could do anything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the prep work that you've done because you've said that you've told me that you had. I mean, we've seen you know uh, at least on tour. You even have one of the albino penguins. penguins yeah. Um, and and you told me that you've done like VFX tests and stuff, right? You you've done a whole bunch of. Stuff like so how much work went into that and like what did you actually well ilm ilm was incredibly enthusiastic about making the movie mm -hmm. and uh, john Knoll uh said why don't why don't we do a trailer and they did a trailer he said um, i know what you want let me cobble up things uh, that we have of course cobble up an ilm means the triple a star five-star treatment in any other facility and they made a self-contained absolutely amazing looking teaser trailer that was i thought inarguable but then uh we have developed uh for quite a bit uh we developed i think hundreds of storyboards at least 60 or 70 pieces of art that are beautiful and uh, about six or seven maquettes that show some of the creatures, only in the Shogoth stage. And I thought it would be a, a horror movie, not, not in vogue with what is horror now, mm. but uh, almost a, a classic, yeah. you know? I, I, when I explained it to Universal, I said, this is a neo-classic mm. movie, because you're going to feel like you're watching a classic, but it's going to be edgier, scarier, much more daring, you know? And, and then Carol Spear, the production designer, we started breaking it down, and we went into huge research, reproduced the engine room in a 3D model. Mm -hmm. we, we reproduced the bow, and, the, and we did the whole ship, and then we, like Lovecraft did, we accommodated the number of planes we needed. We knew how many folded wings we could accommodate, where the dogs would be. We broke down the ship, and uh, then we started scouting. And uh, we started scouting, and the movie was presented to Universal for $150 million, with Tom Cruise starring and Jim Cameron co-producing along with us. And we were going to open offices. Uh, on a Monday and on a Friday, I was in near near the uh, border with the North Pole. Mm -hmm. I was in Alaska scouting. I wanted to shoot it really 
It's very different landscape, by the way. Oh. Everybody thinks Antarctica looks like, uh, like only snow, but Antarctica is really rocky and desolate in a different way than most places. But we found a couple of areas up north that we could fly equipment from Canada. And I was <clears throat> flying in a helicopter in brutal temperatures. And actually, I remember watching, we were going over a vast plain of ice as far as the eye could see, and there was a little snaking-shaped black running through the snow, and we saw it was a, a pack of wolves, probably a hundred deep, huh. crossing the ice. And I thought, if this helicopter goes down... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, goodbye, world. <laughs> goodbye, world, you know? And, Somebody uh, gets to eat lunch. Yes, the wolves would have a good time. And then we landed in a little cabin in the middle of nowhere, uh, that was going to host us for the night while we refuel. And uh, even in that distant, desolate land, I got a call to my cell phone that said, you call the studio. And I thought, oh, oh. Yeah. they're going to cancel. Hmm. I knew because you never get that phone call on hmm. a Friday that urgent. If, if there's a phone call, it's bad news. So what was the... So, so they had tentatively agreed, and then they backed well, out. It was, it was a. We had a Mexican standoff. Never better put, you mm. know, about the <laughs> about the rating. Yeah, I wanted it to be R, not because I wanted to go gory, mm. but because I wanted to keep it adult, intense. Well, intense and brutal. Yeah. What I what I said is, is there's not gonna be gore, but I want to see, I want to see when if people get broken in half, I want to see that happen you know the book is not gory the book is not uh, violent but you, the book is only filmable as a certain type of thing that i thought at that moment wouldn't didn't have the the scale i wanted and so if you're making a movie that big you want to deliver uh intensity i thought in the moments that you can no, I mean you ha you have to be able to to pay off the the whole conceit of the old ones and and the conceit of and the size the size, the size of the of city. It, yeah, I mean, uh, a matte painting is a matte painting is a matte painting. No matter how great the matte painting is, is a matte painting. You need to actually build uh, enormous sets. Yeah, that dwarf the eye. That's what that's what was extraordinary about the first alien, where Ridley was able to dress those his kids mm -hmm. in the spacesuits, in the mini spacesuits, yeah. to put them to wander around in the set, you know? So that phone call that you did from that, that remote cabin, uh, you, had, you had the premonition that it was, it was, you know, the feeling that this wasn't going to be Certainly, a good call. Yeah. Um, so what, what was their reasoning? Was it just, we can't fund it? No, it was, it was, I mean, I tell you, I, 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 see, I see exactly the reason, and I, and I would actually... You know, as a businessman, mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked to hear it. Because yeah. they say, look, it's 150, it is a star, but it's R. Mm. And it's a genre that never does this. Yeah. You know, what I was trying to do was to go back to the scale of The Exorcist mm. or The Shining or The Omen, even. Mm -hmm. The Omen was a prestige movie. But, you know, I, I thought that's a really interesting marriage size and scope 
and still in the genre because I've been doing movies for 25 years and my 25 years have been uh, about uh, I want to make movies that are normally done one way. I want to do them another. Yeah. I want to do them as pieces of art or ent entrepreneurially gigantic, you know. Would you want to you want to be the explorer too? Yeah. You want you want to push the boundaries. It's like yeah. you know, because I know at that time, like an R-rated movie was like it it had a cap, yeah. especially an R-rated horror movie. I think Hannibal was like the the most profitable one at that time. But do you think like now today with like the success of it, you know, that's an R-rated, you know, kind of big. It's not. I wouldn't call it a prestige movie, but it does take itself oh, seriously. It's a very. It's a, I mean, I think it's Andy, a very well done. movie. Andy is the real deal. And the movie is narratively yeah. uh, creative, and it has moments of great beauty and eerie, eerie poetry and all yeah. that. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if now would be the time. I, I would say this. The next time I attempt it, I'm going to attempt it only if I really think it's going to happen because yeah. it is too draining. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have no idea how draining it is. It really, uh, the reason I made Shape of Water is because I really, there was a point uh, in many, many ways, in many, many arenas in which the last five or ten years have been really, really hard. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this movie and I'm going to just be completely fearless about it. And I'm going to do whatever I want, and it may very well be my last movie. I don't care, you know? Yeah. And that's the way you live it. But Mountains left an almost uh, a PTSD <laughs> feeling as a filmmaker, as a filmmaker, because it was two, two years, almost a year and a half of prepping, and uh, then bam, you know? And, and you question yourself. You say, okay. Uh, I have Tom Cruise, I have Jim Cameron, I have a, a screenplay that I think is really solid. I have images that nobody has ever seen, and I couldn't get it made. What what goes, you know? Mm. And then and then you know it really it really it really puts a dent on you. And that's why I tell you I understand Carpenter. Mm. I think John really is uh, a case of a great American filmmaker that uh, was out of face with the time, out of pace with the time. Yeah. George Romero, same thing for me. For me, George is, the, if not the greatest, one of the greatest indie directors in American cinema. He's the John Cassavetes of horror, <laughs> in a way. He's a, he was a perennial rebel, a guy that was never domesticated, a guy that refused to conform, and he didn't exactly get rewarded, you know. You know, if you watch Martin, you know, for example, that's like masterpiece. Yeah, and and it's and it's a movie that if anybody else had made it, it would have been like the best movie that they could have ever made in their life. Yeah, you know, and and, it, and his gets dwarfed in the the you know that one gets lost to the to the zombie in the filmography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible. Well, George Berthet, nobody has nobody else has done it. George birthed an entire Sojourn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wrote the rules. He he set the template. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, nobody else. Nobody. Nobody else has done it. Yeah. 
are there any of these guys like John who, I mean, John, John worked on dark, dark star with Dan O'Bannon who did alien dark star mm-hmm. had plenty of Lovecraft DNA in it. Any of your fellow masters of horror that you've, that you've talked to about this on this very long journey that you found yourself on with mountains of madness, any of them that you've, you bounced ideas off of that you've, that you've, you've talked to, you know, their, their thoughts, their feelings about the, the different parts. No, of Lovecraft no, team. because when you get together, the last thing you want to talk is about horror. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. you do talk about this and that, but it's not a knitting circle. Yeah. You know, we don't say, hey, you know, but, but you want to talk about their life, their camera work, their, you want to talk about editing, you want to talk about uh, just their opinion on the latest movies. You ask them about their movies, but no one says, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? You know, <laughs> yeah. go, oh, it's not the Joy Luck Club. You know? <laughs> we, we get, uh, uh, and then, the the really terrifying thing in those dinners is who you know dividing the check, because <laughs> yeah. a, a a few of them always try to slip. <laughs> you know, I, I won't say any names, <laughs> but there's a couple that tried to run away before the check arrived. <laughs> oh man, I, my babysitters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I gotta go. I got a phone call. You know, <laughs> as they're scooping up their last yeah, dessert. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. As as you know, not that, to... that's sorry to interrupt, but oh, that that's where the name Masters of Horror came, because we were in the first dinner, and it was not called that; it was just the dinner. And then somebody had a birthday in the other table, and I I went, I said, let's go and sing Happy Birthday to them. So Carpenter, Landis, Joe Dante, we all got, uh, we all went and sang Happy Birthday. And I said, you may be unaware, but the Masters of Horror just sang you Happy Birthday. And then we started joking, and I said, the Masters of Horror divide the check. You know, the Masters of Horror checked that they didn't order two Diet Cokes. <laughs> and then we were outside, and I said, the Masters of Horror give their tickets to the ballet parking. And then I said, who of the Masters of Horror will tip? Who will not? And it was a joke, you know? And then that's where the series came from, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, as, you know, hopefully us talking to you about this isn't... isn't uh spiking the PTSD, but is, is maybe a, a, a bit of therapy. We, you've talked about Tom Cruise a bit. Um, we'd love to talk to you a bit about, about casting. Uh, I, I have a feeling that Ron Perlman was in mind for Larson yeah, yeah, in the version right. of the script that, yeah, that yeah. I read. Um, who, else, who else has been in the mix? Who else has been in mind? You know, people who are in mind for Dyer, bef- I'm assuming Tom was going to play Dyer and, yeah. not, and not Lake. I, 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 Lake, I, I spoke very, I mean, I gave the screenplay to Michael Sheen mm. for Lake. And Michael, we we had a lunch and or dinner. We had a dinner in Santa Monica, and he said I he wanted to do it. I think he's a fabulous actor. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the most complex characters in yeah. the, in the script. You know, yeah. it, he's somebody who could easily come off as a villain, uh, yeah, well, he, but but you understand him. He and, he's a great character, and and he has this uh, sort of second layer that is very perverse, mm-hmm. uh, in which he's. A guy interested in dominating, you know? And, and manipulating. Manipulating. Yeah. And there was an iteration in which there was the last screenplay. I know the one you read is where uh, uh, Lake had a sister and, no, yeah, and Dyer was, Dyer and the sister were not in love. There was not a love story properly, but it was a very, very strange gothic 
thing. The, the one we read, the only female presence in it whatsoever is Dyer's wife who is pregnant. Yeah, and who, who, who dies while he's away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and uh, Lake keeps that from him. Yeah, yeah. And it reveals yeah. it at the absolute worst time, Moment, probably. Yeah. 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 Well, that, 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 that's a really interesting friendship for me. Yeah. That these guys have gone through the ranks. There was always the, the problem of class. Mm. Lake was a, a born with a silver spoon, you know, and Dyer was, and and you know what we did is we went through the, because in in the in the book uh, it's very hard to know the names, mm. but it, it it takes a little bit of a detective work to break <laughs> down the characters and some of them some of them are accurate to the book some of them are not yeah, but um because in the book like Lake is is like the. He's in the 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 first mission, yes. the first group that goes yeah. out. And, yeah, and, and you 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 invented Gordon, but yeah. a lot of the names, even From though Gordon the, Pym, yeah, the a lot of the other names were just you know repurposed, moved around. Yes, um, uh, Gedney is a newsman now, and he was uh, an engineer. Yes. Something like that. Yeah, and uh, he didn't have a, a little brother in the, no. the book. And that's one of my favorite sequences. That, my, that, that. that when you ask me what scene do I want to see the most? Is, yeah. The one where the, the Gedney sees his brother appear in the window, yeah, and, and 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 appear again and again and again. That was a very scary. I thought probably the most scary moment. That and I don't know if yours had the what we call the crawling horror, the thing that crawled in the corridors of the ship. No, a thing without opera. Tell us about yeah. the crawling horror. Well, it, it was it was a, a, a it was a very nice design. Of, you know. It was one of the shoggoths trying to imitate a human, but it was not completely formed. Hmm. It was very interesting. In what way? Like what? So it was half human and half. Well, in half not formed. Yeah. So it was almost like a, a, an elongated mass of flesh on top and just two legs on the bottom. Well, and that that like goes to uh, uh, talking a little bit about your. Uh, ideas of going practical were you wanting to do i'm assuming yeah. you had to do a meld yeah um, yeah uh, we had we had we budgeted it uh th that was part of what, what made the movie 150 yeah that there was a massive amount of physical yeah because i didn't think the materials and the techniques that we can use today would allow a blend of uh, physical and digital that would be really spectacular yeah yeah it's is it were you thinking of going with spectral again, or was that going to be? I was going to. Uh, well, spectral is the one that did the maquettes and yeah. did the budget. Yeah. And so spectral for the VFX and ILM was going to spectral for v the yeah, that's physical effects. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and the ILM for VFX. Yeah, ILM did a really thorough budget, and we. I mean, I wish uh, you could see the little test. It's really amazing. Yeah. Is that uh, under lock and key at Universal? Is that the? No, no, no. I I have a, a copy. It's just I I'm very. Very, very mindful of uh, the fact that contracts and lawyers. And well, no, it was it was not actually. It, it's it's a gray area because ILM did it on their own. Yeah, we no no money was exchanged, but you know, gray area is a gray area. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, there's I, there's also a, an aspect of respect to. Yeah, you know, to uh, and and by the way, you know, I think that. Uh, uh, the parting with Universal was so amicable, mm. you know, that if I went back and tried to do it again, that would be the the place I would go to first. 
even though they dumped you over the phone while you were freezing your ass no, off? No, 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 <laughs> no, because the the actual, the phone call was, uh, can you meet on Monday? No, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the actual meeting took place on Monday uh, in California. Yeah. Do you remember any other uh, people you were thinking about for, for the, uh, well, the characters? Well, Ron, uh, Sheen, yeah. and, uh, you know, there's a list of actors I always like. Yeah. You know, I, I always, I liked John C. Riley. Mm. you know, uh, I had my list back then. Yeah. In, in rereading the script, I, I just recently saw John Hodgman do his book tour, and I couldn't help but hear John Hodgman's voice reading, reading the story to me as if, as an, as if an audio book. You mm-hmm. have such a wealth of guys that, that can play that kind of New England intellectual yeah. professor yeah. type. Yeah. No, it was really, it really, I think casting the movie would have been quite great. Uh, but again, the Universal also is the, the studio that financed the thing, mm. you know, and, and therefore, uh, somewhere in the books, there is that uh, red flag, expensive, red, expensive, R-rated, all male ensemble. Antarctica warning. (laughs) Well, and it's, and it's interesting though, like, because just the way executives and the money people are bred, nobody wants to think in the long term. Like I've had that argument with people because I'm sure at this point with as much merchandising and with as much, you know, uh, you know, retro screenings and Blu-rays and DVDs, the things probably turned to profit. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, look, it's, if you, if you go north a hundred. Yeah. The rules change. Yeah, I I I I know it, and it's an, an interesting exercise. I liked it, mm-hmm. and I you know I plan to play in that arena again, yeah. in that size. But uh, you need to know that it's a different game. It's like playing college football and playing in the NFL. Yeah. It's a very different exercise, and and I understand if they want to know that they have a sequel. You know because the books. The amortization of the resources and the amortization of the what they call the IP, mm-hmm. you know, uh, only makes sense if you can make two or three movies. So the only way that that they like in today's market, the way you'd probably the only way you could pitch it is is like an extended Lovecraft universe. The only the only way you, the only way this movie should be made, yeah, in the present uh, conditions is. Under eighty million dollars, yeah. because then I think that the worst thing you can do is to then say, "Oh, that's what that's what cost over one hundred and fifty. Let's let's make sure that we can get a sequel." No, yeah. do the right movie or don't do it at all. So yeah. go smaller. Yeah, you know. So if it happens, it'll happen smaller. Doesn't mean, I mean, doesn't mean it has to happen less spectacularly. I think that uh, the exercise in making Shape of Water for less than nineteen point five million. Hmm. And having the scope we have, you know, is a very good proof that I, you know, I will be able to deliver it at a certain scale, even with that budget, you know, that that a few years ago was not thinkable, you know. Not to completely play devil's advocate about the connected Lovecraft universe, but it it did make me wonder, and you bringing it up uh, makes me wonder whether in conceptualizing it further, if you would leave room for doing things like or yourself or curating, producing people doing adaptations of things like the thing on the doorstep, the honor of the dark, 
um, you know, other Shogoth, Elder Things, course, connected but the, stuff. But most of the story, most of the Lovecraft stories work very well in, in a format of 45 minutes and mm. under. He's not a guy that, I think when, when people luckily stretch their stories, it's because he's a serious, like, like Herbert West is more than one story. Mm. You know, Herbert West was such a fun character that Lovecraft kept writing him over and over again. So Reanimator is the amalgam of many of those ideas into a feature. But if you see, <clears throat> if you do the thing at the doorstep, that's a, a long, short film. Like 40 pages? 40, yeah, yeah, but it would be like a 40-minute 40, 40 screenplay. It would be a great episode a of Night Gallery. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. It, it could be an, a, a Lovecraft anthology series. Yeah, or... or it sounds or, awesome. Awesome. Or, or, or a, simply an anthology series, which can be done with classics, but you... What what you don't do is take the, the I mean, I think it's very difficult. Dagon did it, you know, mm -hmm. but I think the shadow of Erin's mouth, it, its ideal length is less than an hour. Mm -hmm. In my my mind, the way I read it, you know, yeah. I think about it and I think about it and I can hardly think of any of the books, those stories that would make a good feature. But possibly... You can you know pair some of them together, kind of like how yeah. You know. Well, an anthology films are very risky, and and and, and even I don't want to ever do one. Yeah, <clears throat> because uh, as a kid, I loved them. I loved the 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 Amicus. Oh yeah, movies, and I loved Tales from the Crypt yeah. and all that. But the rule of thumb, which is absolutely true, is the movie is as good as its worst episode. Mm. It's not as good as his best episode. And there's almost always the. It's always always the. There's the always middle one, one that is bad. Yeah. There's always one that is bad. Yeah. I mean, when I the my favorite of those anthology movies is Tales from the Crypt, mm. and there's one that is bad. Yeah. You know, and it's so mediocre that you forget it's there. Yeah. You know, Black Sunday is is mine. Is like my my favorite anthology. Yeah, that 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 really uh, doesn't have a bad one. Yeah, I mean. It, yeah, no, and and the the dripping water one is like it's still like it stuck with me like so grown hungry. ass man. I'm just yeah. like nope, I'm I'm done with that. Yeah, <laughs> that guy. Remember that lady in the bed. Yeah. Um. Uh. Well, one thing that uh that you made sure in, in at least in the draft that we read, you one thing that I really loved is that everybody who has done something that's uh Lovecraftian or you know, or a direct adaptation or, you know, or just something inspired by has never really been able to pull off uh, Cthulhu, right? They've never done that giant, massive scope thing. It's, it's you know, even talking about, you know, the thing that's more the Shoggoth and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Well, and you I'm, actually... very, I'm very happy of the image <clears throat> we did on Hellboy. Yeah. Oh, in which, very, in, which, very in which you have the thundercloud. Yes. And then the, the thunder, the lightning illuminates the shapes in yeah. the clouds, well, and that gives it scale. And Captain, uh, yeah, I, th I think there's still a wet spot in the Paramount Theater from when you showed that at South by Southwest because uh, yeah. I, I kind of lost my mind. Yeah, no, it, it was it was a really nice <clears throat> way to convey scope if, if the clouds. Yeah, and I've seen that image now in a couple of places, mm -hmm. which I'm happy about. <laughs> Little Stranger uh, Things season two. Well, you know, but 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 yeah. the duffers are good good pals. Yeah, and uh, when they did the first one, they said we're gonna do a little bit of pan's labyrinth on the on the creature, and we're gonna do a little bit of uh, 
the floating pollen from bands <laughs> and uh, going through the wood. And I said, do you, I hope you don't mind. I said, I don't mind at all. I'm yeah. very happy. You know, I tried to, I sort of mentored them for a little bit at Warner's when they were trying to get their first feature mm. launched, you know, and, and uh, they are really, really smart guys. I mean, yeah. I, I, I adore them. Yeah, no, I'm a huge Stranger Things fan. Uh, you know, I, I love their voice, and I, I've never met them, but in interviews, they seem like my kind Very of dudes. Very nice guys. Um, but, you know, the, the, point, the point being is, like, you actually have, you know, you actually have him show up, you know, in, in this. And, like, he has a moment. He, of course, it's not like a... It's, a, not, it's not mythos accurate. Yeah. Because in, in, theor in theory, Cthulhu is on the South Seas. Yeah. <laughs> he shouldn't be doing anything. Yeah, uh, that 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 further south, yeah. you know, but he's in the warmer tropical <laughs> yeah. areas. But but you kind of I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it it was really beautiful to see the scope at the end. Well, and you need yeah, that because you never know what they see through the window. Of course, yeah, through the portal. You know, yeah. Well, and, and you kind of you need that you need that uh, punctuation mark when you're asking an audience to come and experience all this really like crazy stuff. There has to be that that payoff. Mm -hmm. There, ha you see the the Shagath, you know, praying and and chanting and and conjuring, yeah, you know, and, and summoning this thing. It's like you, ha there has to be that moment, and I, I really, I really like the balance in in the draft that we read. Like, well, I really like the, the I liked it. I liked it also because at the end of the day, I thought, okay, you know, it may be too glib hmm. to do it, but I, I thought, uh, if you think of that universe. That's the only payoff you can. <laughs> yep. that, that, that's you're gonna end up with them seeing something that drives their their hair white. You know, yep. it's gonna be a thing of that size. Something, uh, something just yeah, mind breaking. You have to yeah. see a little something mind breaking. Um, can you talk a little bit about the look of the movie and what you were, what you had envisioned, like who you wanted to shoot it? Like, did you have? Did you start like a, well? It was going to be a very very stark. Uh, what I thought was interesting was to make it like a sepia film, you know. Yeah. Uh, mm. But but if it makes sense, also in grays and steels, uh, it was the sepia film was America mm. and Departed. Yeah. All the first part was going to be sort of uh, almost a little golden, and then as you went into the Second phase, it was going to become a black and white. Mm. And why, what I mean by that is what's going to be steel grays, grays. I was thinking of the Alaska uh, Malamuth, the, the dogs in mm -hmm. the sled. And I thought they are black and white. And it would be great to make the ship dark steel against the white eyes, black fur, black uniforms, black, uh, tan, mm -hmm. like gray tent, not use any color. And then go to the city and have iridescence, you mm. know, so it contrasts with the rest. Mm. Oh, no, no. What about the color scheme of the uh, of the Shoggoth and and all well, that stuff? I, I I thought that curiously the color came with the city and with the Shoggoth. Yeah, you know, one of the things we experimented in the maquettes was the iridescence mm. and the iridescence, and then the, you could see like I remember the the cover of the pulp magazine. <laughs> Uh, with the shoggoths being translucent with these eyeballs, mm -hmm. and you could see all the organs through the translucency of the protoplasm, you know. Yeah. And 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 I thought that's the look for them. They need uh -huh. to be translucent. 
with the uh, the elder things um there 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 are very strong opinions about exactly how they should be depicted uh among lovecraft fans mm-hmm. w- what did you feel you had to, uh, you had to stick to design wise and what did you feel like you had to do so that it would read well cinematically well the only i mean there is there is a source that is fantastic that is lovecraft's own drawings you know now lovecraft is a phenomenal writer. I'm not sure he's a phenomenal designer, but what as a fan, I gotta take it like the Bible. So what we did is we solved it beautifully by reproducing exactly Lovecraft's drawing. But then that's one mode, and then there are things that are folded within that design that can come out. You'll see it. You know, I'll show it to you. <laughs> Oh, I'm done yes, with that. No. <laughs> no. This is what editing is for. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's here. Yeah. So, is this? Um, you you were saying that you're, that you still obviously you still feel pulled back to this story. Is is this something that you just feel like is gonna gonna happen? You know, I'm 53, feeling? man. I don't feel. <laughs> I don't feel. Uh, I feel like uh, I gotta. I gotta know that. Uh, I want to live a little, uh-huh. and I I have a few movies that I I think could really really impact the genre that I love. Mm. That's one of them. And I, but I gotta think that life shows you where you're going. You know, I I I find that the most interesting paths reveal themselves to you. You know, I I I think that the if if the movie is meant to happen, it'll happen. If not, I'm pretty sure Western civilization will survive mm-hmm. without <laughs> it. You know, I don't. I'm not ha- so sure about that. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, have you looked out? Have you read the news today? You know, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think yeah, there was that beautiful bumper sticker: "Vote for Cthulhu, the lesser evil." <laughs> right? you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be so bad? You know, <laughs> Maybe. No, you know, I think I think that. Uh, I I don't I don't do I don't declare anything about <coughs> my own future anymore. Yeah. So I just say, look what I learned is life is what happens when you're making other plans. John Lennon was absolutely right. Yeah. Um, provided you did, you know, go back and and end up doing the film, you feel like you would still use the practical locations that you found in Alaska, you would maybe build well, things yeah, in but, studios but, in yeah, Toronto. Yeah, but, but what I think is what I think is important in this is the mandate is how much can we do it for so we can keep absolute freedom, mm. not the other way around. You know, I mean, my experience with Shape of Water came out of making Crimson Peak for 55 and ha- having to market it mm. as a horror film because it wasn't. And, and, and to me, what that, that is another one that hurt lot because uh if you if you make a gucci bag and they market it as a blender and somebody buys it as a blender they say this is the worst blender i've ever seen <laughs> this doesn't make say, smoothies what, the, what the fuck did you sell me? but it's a gucci bag and they say yeah but it's i bought it as a blender and to me crimson peak was the way i would have done it was 
and I, I wouldn't have forced the hand of the studio if I did it for 2025. Mm. The studio could have marketed for what it was. Yeah. You know? And then it would be marketed as a very strange, sort of deranged little gothic romance story, you know? And, and, and it would have been a different life for the movie. So Mountains of Madness now, the way I think about it now, is when it happens, if it happens, it'll happen at the scale that allows the movie to be quirky mm. and to retain the spirit of the book, even more so than the last draft that we had. You know, I think that we can go back to a more pure place and, and, uh, and, and get it made for less. If anything, you know, we talked about there needing to be a love story and the collegial relationship between uh, between professors and, and grad students and so on. In rereading the story, I I almost read Dyer and Danforth as lovers. Well, they they are they are meant to be uh, this. You know, I, I I was saying the model was Gallipoli. You know. Where that's the love story. The love story is two friends that absolutely grew together, grew up together, and they don't want to be, uh, you know, they 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 don't want to see any of them fall into a dire destiny, you know, and and I I think that's that's uh, almost like a western, you know, sort of uh, romance as they say now, but but it it's not. Um, is that's the th the thing for me? That's what what sustains it, mm. Carpenter. That there is, when people say they are the same characters, I go, no, I see friendship. Mm -hmm. They actually do see, you know, yeah. and I see rough guys. But Carpenter has always had this Western uh, sort of frame of mind. He's that's that's why to me Carpenter is one of the most American filmmakers mm -hmm. ever, along with Hawks and a few others. He is completely American. Yeah, well, and, and uh, but, but you're exactly right, and it's that bonding, the, the reason why we care about, you know, the people dying or who's infected and who's not in that is because we like them, even if we don't like them. You know, it's like, it's like there, there are certain, certain characters in there that, that you're like, ooh, I bet he's a thing, and then, you know, he's not. You know, it's like you know, I I love I love how he plays with that, and you know, Wilford Brimley, I, yeah, he breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah, when you see the noose through yes. the through the doorway, yes. or through the, <laughs> I'm all better now. Yeah, but 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 that, that's what I mean. How, who? I mean, the the thing about, uh, sometimes, the gulf between film criticism, and the permanence of a movie, very, now and then. It seldom happens, but when it happens, it's heartbreaking. I, I lived it in my teenage years with the, the first Blade Runner and with The Thing. The first Blade Runner was also vilified mm -hmm. when it came out. At this point, we almost get this, this preemptive film criticism for things. That, I mean, people have talked about this movie that you never made mm -hmm. as if, well, having looked at this PDF that I found online, yeah. this script obviously would not properly do justice to the yeah, blah, 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 and, blah, and, blah, and blah. By the way, th that, that would happen no matter what. Hmm. Uh, what you find is when you play in arenas that are very much cherished, no matter what it is, it can be any of the universes, and Lovecraft is certainly a universe. I mean, I, uh, we tried to make an analysis to present to the studio about the fact that Lovecraft is essentially uh, like Tolkien. Mm. Tolkien, 
has a, more of an accountancy of how wide his influence was because he had he left a, a legacy, had heirs, therefore the heirs keep a tally. But the number of books in print of H.P. Lovecraft are astoundingly. It's been translated to every language and is beloved. And no matter what you do, no matter what you do, 50% of the people will love it, 50% of the people will hate it in a good day. The people that really are the core. You know, and yeah. that is true of any universe, uh, superhero, fantasy, no but matter what. I, but I have to imagine, though, that because it's never actually been done at the scale you were trying to do it at, that, that even a lot of the people who might disagree with some of the choices you make would appreciate no, actually no. seeing you. Don't believe that. No, don't. That's not human nature. No. no. And I understand it. Yeah. And I understand it. And I'm cool with it. Yeah. I mean, you don't play in an arena that big without somebody absolutely vocally disliking what you're doing. I mean, no matter what. Yeah. It can be the Marvel Universe. It can be DC. It can be Star Wars. It can be Tolkien. It can be Harry Potter. Yeah. Somebody is not going to like what you do, and that's, and that's fine. No, you, you, you're not presenting it as, uh, okay, now I made my movie. Give me all your books. I'm going to destroy it. No, <laughs> give your books. Give your universe. This is the movie. You don't like it. God bless you. Don't see it ever again. Never again. Don't buy the DVD. Don't buy the, the Blu-ray. Tell some <laughs> people not to go. That's all in within your right. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, we, we've talked a lot about what your vision was for the, the movie, um, but we haven't really talked about uh, what you were thinking in terms of audio. Because so much, like, some, my favorite stuff, the stuff that stuck with me as a kid reading Lovecraft was, like, the descriptions of the musical notes, you know, blowing, you know, the wind blowing through the And the Michaela Lee. Yeah, yeah. And, and all that, you know, yeah, just the language is so specific. You know, it's almost, not saying it's comparative to Klingon, but Klingon has a very harsh, specific thing. And I, like, well, but we've never, like, reading this, like, I still probably can couldn't pronounce half of what I read. Well, I think that that, that uh, as sad as it may sound, we never got that different. Yeah. <laughs> but even in your mind, you didn't, you didn't have that. No, I knew, I, knew, of... I knew that the description was going to be, uh, I read somewhere in an interview, um, somebody described it as wind instruments. Mm. And that sounded really accurate because, uh, in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which inspired H.P. Lovecraft, you know, uh, is the cry of birds. So, you know, I think uh, you get this idea that is music in, in nature, that is wind in nature. It's obviously not percussion, obviously yeah. not horns, obviously not uh, marimba, you know, <laughs> so it's going to be some form of wind instrument. It it, it, is that how you think the the score would have been too? Would it have been mirrored no, or would it have uh, All I know is I wanted Howard Shore. <coughs> yeah. To do the score. Oh Jesus! And we talked <laughs> we talked a little bit about it. Well, I mean, yeah, <clears throat> people know him from his Lord of the Rings stuff, and he can do the thematic things, but his Cronenberg yeah. work is like uh, well, I, astonishing. I, so, and I, I think some of the fitting the Minds of Moria Q mm. is very Lovecraftian, and and that episode uh, on the first uh, movie is very very. Lovecraftian mm. in a way. I think even if it's, you know, the whole episode in, in the mind of Moria is really 
wide love that. In in looking at finding ways to to make uh, wind music, woodwind, as it were, sound different, were you interested in looking at at putting that putting that kind of air through you know non standard types of things like you know church organ pipes and uh, you know doing never using that, different never materials anything far. like that never went that far. I mean, I wish we had, but we never went that far. I mean, I think. Uh, if we look, look, the way I calculate things is a year and a half of pre-production, we were going to open offices and pre-produce for another six months. Mm. That means you, essentially, this movie would have taken me three years, maybe four. So, you know, we were caught so early yeah. and so late at the same time. The the one music thing that that is specifically called out in the script that I wanted to ask you about that would it survive into a future version of the movie is uh, Jesse Matthews' 1927 version of My Heart Stood Still. Yeah. What what was it that was so essential about that specific song? Because you're very you're very specific about music like it's, that. It's very melancholic. I mean, it's really eerie. It's really quite. Uh, you know, it's like the music in Shape of Water. I spend uh, nine months selecting mm. every needle drop and every. You and every mm, uh, clip that we saw, you know. So I remember the specificity of it uh, was that uh, it's sort of uh, all the all all the music from the period has a sense of loss that is very creepy, very mm -hmm. creepy. You know, all the Tim Pan Alley also compositions. They have, it's all very <clears throat> post-stock market crash or right around well, the, the it, crash. It is. It has. When you see a movie like Pennies from Heaven, there is a sense of doom <laughs> in the love song. And that's the idea in that song. Beyond music and beyond the, the wind sounds, acoustically, did you, did you feel like the sound design of, of the city was going to be particularly unique in a way, in terms of the way that, that sound well, played off the surfaces? If you, if you remember... The I don't know if it's in the screenplay you read, but if you remember, we had moments in which the the wind would go through the tunnels mm -hmm. and it would howl, you know, you know, it pushes all the air, the Antarctic air through, basically an organ. Mm -hmm. The city is an organ. It's like a wind instrument, and the whole city almost breathe, you know. So yeah, that was that was annotated in the page. Hmm. I I think I'm I'm pretty. All right. So you you mentioned other stuff that you haven't gotten to. So I I I I figured I figured it it couldn't hurt to ask about. I mean, there there are people that have asked you about Frankenstein and Slaughterhouse Five and, and so yeah, on. Yeah, but let's not do an inventory yeah, yeah. of penalties. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there, there, well, there was there was one in particular that I just wanted to bring up uh, that I I can't remember who told me about it, but it was uh, Mephisto's bridge. Yeah, yeah, but that's gone, 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 gone. I mean, I have cannibalized it by now. I I took the wings and put them in the Angel of Death. You know, is that I, I, the the reason I was bringing it up in the first place was just to get a a quick thread of 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 how you cannibalize things. Well, no, that... I just I just reuse. I keep that image. It's not an image that was per se attached to that screenplay is an image that I attached to the that that image comes from an engraving uh archangels in Mexico and archangels in medieval iconography often have uh one eye per wing. 
their wings are made of ice. But I'm talking about hundreds of eyes. And uh, in Mephistos, that was the idea. Each, each feather has an eye. Of course, I cannot do that, but I put the, the eyes on the ridge of the feather in, in Hellboy, you know? And, uh, and then, you know, but that comes from iconography that is beyond Mephisto. The, there's a couple of moments in Mephisto that I, I, I would still love to do, but it's a really old script. Um, are 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 there any are there any unmade projects of yours that that are on that list of things that you'll be rolling around in the back of your head during your Monte sabbatical Cristo. year? You're see, now you're just catering to me. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. The, uh, searchlight. Uh, after we did um, Shape of Water, Water, yeah, they said, "What what else do you have?" And I sent Monte Cristo. Tom Cruise asked back then, "What do you have?" I sent Monte Cristo. Yeah. I still think it's the best screenplay, along with The Witches and the Beauty and the Beast. Those three screenplays are the three best screenplays that I have written or co-written. I would love to read the other two. Well, yeah, no, I re- I reread Monte Cristo once a year. The beauty, the beauty of the Beauty and the Beast uh, was I was incredibly proud of that script, you know, and uh, I was I am incredibly proud of The Witches because it I think it captures Roald Dahl's book and Lizzie Dahl said, you know, in a very flattering way, she said it's the best adaptation of, of Rawls' work ever. And I thought, well, I hope so. I wish so. And you don't know. But it's a movie that I also tried to do. I mean, look, all in all, uh, somebody listed a thing the other day that was 45 movies. I went, well, some of them are uh, some of them are things that somebody announced but never, you know, announcement announcements exist in our world because people need to feed media every day. And this is not a business in which you cannot, you cannot feed media every day on the reality of the business. Yeah. But you have to say, somebody, somebody saw Ridley Scott reading an Archie comics. Is it, <laughs> is it possible that he's going to do Archie and Betty and Veronica? Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, I'd see that movie. Yeah, but but um, there are in fact around twenty five screenplays that I have written or co-written. I have only made ten movies, so there is roughly to calculate the least is ten movies that are written. Physically, there's a screenplay that that required six months to a year develop. Some of them have one year and a half or two years of development. So in total, I'm 53. And if I didn't, uh, if, if, if the tragedy of movies on May had not struck me, I would be 40. You know what I'm saying? I would be yeah. a 40 year old guy. So I know in fact, there are 13 years of my life of saying goodbye at 9 a.m., coming back at 6 p.m. that were wasted on things that didn't happen. To bring things back around to a to a happier, warmer mm-hmm. karmic position, um, the Shape of Water has been a, a wonderful healing experience for so many people that have seen it so far, well, for and it, and for you personally, it seems. What 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 things have you have you taken from the movie that particularly healed you and renewed you? I mean, there were a couple of things you mentioned in particular about how it it changed your thinking about how if you were to make Mountains of Madness at this point, under what conditions and how you would do it and where the line is drawn, as it were. Well, you know, first of all, I really think um, 
the the way movies are consumed is changing, you know, and I I I don't look back ever and say, oh, it was better before or anything like that. But you you do want to try to make movies that honor film, and I don't mean film as celluloid. I mean the cinema going experience that you generate images that that have a certain permanence, you know, if you can do it. And and it makes you think very carefully, you know, what you do next. I don't know if I'm going to do a tiny movie next or a giant franchise movie next. I have no idea. So the one thing that it changed is I'm producing all of 2018, but I'm a director in 2018 until September. September, I will be prepping some. I don't know why, but what I do know is I'm going to take months to decide. All of my life as an adult, I have others decide for me to a certain degree. I mean, I've had my hand on my fate, uh, on my fate uh, twice, once in Devil's Backbone, in which I said, I'm making Devil's Backbone. And Blade 2 tried to jump ahead, and I said, no, 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 I'm doing Devil's Backbone first, and I'll do Blade 2, no matter what. And and if you want me, you'll wait for me because I got to do this one first. And Pan's Labyrinth and Shippo, you know, these are three movies where I said, I'm doing this next, no matter what, no matter with whom, you know, and I'll do it as small as it needs. The first budget for Shape of Water was much bigger, you know, and but then they said 19.5, and I said, okay. And we did it. We gave it. We, we you gave money in, back. Yeah, we came back 200,000 under, you know. So that's that's gonna be what I get back as salary because I invested all my salaries plural producer writer director into the movie. But there is uh, there's a sense of I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna be active as producer, but I'm gonna take a break and think what I'm doing next. So that that alone is a miracle. One of the things that you've you've talked about in interviews already is that you're going to do a series of interviews with Michael Mann, a series of interviews with George yeah, Miller. Yeah. Is this is this something that you're looking at doing more of that kind of stuff? Well, I, I you know only with people I deeply admire, and a lot of them are busy, you know. Yeah. And I, and 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 it's it's hard for someone. My condition, if you want to call it that, my condition is that they give me two weeks of their time, because I do want to be very deep in the way I interview someone. I want to prepare my questions, and they are mostly about craft. We will talk about theme and anecdote and all that. Of course we will. But I want to say, I want to phrase the craft, because uh, I think that's very absent in the discourse of film right now. A lot of people talk about movies in terms of plot and character, and that is a huge disservice to the visual weight, the audiovisual weight of movies. We don't give them that epic size they have. You know, uh, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, and I've said this before, is I, like everyone else, am incredibly taken by long-form narrative in TV and, and so forth, but because it generates an amazing character, an amazing plotline. But it does not generate, with very few exceptions, rarely does it generate monumental images that never go away, you know? I got, 
it generates monumental moments. There are plot reveal moments. That, or that moments kind of where thing. I can say, the scene in which so-and-so do that is amazing. Yeah, but can you draw the frame? No, you can. You can. Yeah, can you draw can you Lawrence draw? of Arabia blowing at the match? Yeah. Can you draw uh, the elevators gushing blood in The Shining? Yes. Can you draw Chaplin going through the machine in modern times? Yes. Can you draw the ending of... Uh, um, the ending of The Shining, yes, you can. Can you draw, uh, uh, you know, Gene Kelly grabbing the lamppost and singing in the rain? Yes. And therefore, if we have a painterly, musical, flow, magical thing that is filmed, why don't we discuss it in those terms? And that's what I want to do with Miller and, and Mann, you know, to talk about the, that craft. Why do we do that? And, and did you think about it? And even if the answer is no, then to talk about why did you shoot that way? Why did you use this camera? Why did you, what was happening through your mind? I, I, I read somewhere that George Miller, and I asked him, and he said, no, it's not entirely true. Somebody early in the days, the, the, the interviews with George Miller were so rare, so rare, uh, that I had, they, they, I, I got one or two. Uh, and I treasured them, and I read them, you know, and, and, and I, one of them said that he had seen Mad Max and had tried to buy back the negative and destroy it because he was so sure it was a bad movie. That, and I asked George, and George said, no, no, it's not quite true. And he said, I didn't feel that way. It was this and that. But that did happen to me with Pan Slaver, exactly that. I, I, I went to Alfonso in New York and I said, Alfonso, let me, let's never release this movie because it's absolutely terrible. You know, I, 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 can I buy the negative back from all the partners? Give me a few years. And, and then he said, show it to me. And I, I had the hard drive and I showed it the movie and he loved it. And he said, you're, you're insane. But that, that the fact that you get that you get lost in your own maze is really something. It's part of the craft, and I think when a filmmaker talks to a filmmaker, you can reveal things that people could talk about again. I I think my favorite book on film is Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock, you know, and I think that the level of craft becomes evident when that happens. It's a very different level of candor. Are there other people that you've that you've approached or that you want to approach? To well, do that I, sort of I, thing? I, would, I would love to talk about. I mean, when you talk, I'm talking about the way I approach this is I make furniture, let's say, and I, I'm approaching somebody that assembles furniture without using glue or nail, like a, 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 an amazing craftsman like George Miller or Mann, that I see the chair, and you know. The way I see a chair, because I make chairs, is very different than somebody that appraises chairs for an antique, uh, an auction house. I make them, so I see the assembly. I see the beauty and the elegance of the wood, the grain, you know. I would love to interview uh, Francis Coppola. I would love to interview Marty. I would love to interview Spielberg, because in terms of orchestrating the camera and the actors, everybody talks about the amazing 10-minute sequences, but Spielberg has these mini-masters that are within between one minute and three minutes in most of his movies that are just a amazing pieces of a, of a stage that 
should be studied in every film school, you know? You mentioned that night. First thing I think about is uh, is the Kintner attack on in Jaws. Yeah. You know, and just the way he uses editing in a way that, like, most people yeah. hadn't seen before. Yeah. You know, and how he was able to, to convey a feeling through that. And, he, you know, the motherfucker was like 26. Yeah. Totally. You know, when think, he did but, that. But, but you see, I mean, you see Duel and realize, if you, if you told me right now, you were holding your entire family, including the cousins, prisoner, and we're going to kill them, you got to shoot Duel. <laughs> and the amount of days he shot it, yeah. they would all die. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't. But the same happens with uh, when I see something in a very different way, okay, in a very different tone. The same thing happens with something like Baby Driver. I mean, most people can see how great it is and how, but when you think the way I think in terms of procedural, like call sheet day, breakdown, uh, assembly, editing, the conception of that movie is insanely complex. It's in it's, it's a, it's a, Gene, it's a Gene Kelly musical in so it, many but places. It, but, it's, but it goes beyond that because, I mean... Uh, it's way, that layered on top of a car chase, on top of a this, on top of a that. It's an impossible feat. I mean, it really is a superhuman feat of... Uh, it's a virtuoso, actually. I, well, I'd say, and you may agree or disagree with it. Or, yeah. or some people may adore it, some people may not. I don't know. I adore it. I, I can tell you. I look at it and and... The only way I can break it down is with Edgar and talk about it. But that maybe I do another book in which I do shorter interviews about specific movies. But uh, the way Alfonso orchestrated the one shot in the car in Children of Man, of course we know how he did. Of course you can break it down. But the difference is we can break it down. We know how he did it. We can talk about it. Somebody even might reproduce it. Not a problem. But the the gulf between that and conceiving it is unfathomable. You know what I'm saying? Because the the difference is amazing. That to, to and to ask him why, why did you need to make it one shot? Which I've had that conversation with him, but I would like to have it publicly because it illuminates our craft in a different way. It's an it's an enormous question for me to then turn around on you. But with Shape of Water, mm-hmm. the thing that hit the front of my brain uh, upon first seeing it is that uh, uh, finally I've seen a Mexican make a French film mm-hmm. uh, yes. that is also a silent film, that is also a musical, that is also yeah. an epic romance, mm-hmm. that is also a, a Chaplin movie and a Lloyd movie mm-hmm. and a Keaton movie all yeah, at once. Yeah, yeah. All of those different layers of, 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 of construction of the whole piece, d- did you find bits of those coming to you as you were putting it together? Was it something that you had no, a lot of the ingredients? The answer is yes and no. Yeah. You, do it, you, you do it, you're seeking a specific thing, and then you find other things in the way. What were you seeking specifically well, that led you down the path? There is a great story. There's a, one of my, the most influential little fairy tales that I've ever read talks about three brothers that are on the way to uh, woo a princess. And two of the brothers are wealthy, and, and they're smart and they're good looking and the third brother is uh, this shy little guy that nobody is absolutely sure what he's good at and along the way he picks up things that everybody thinks are useless he picks up a dead bird he picks up a piece of string he picks a little cheese you know and 
you know, they say, throw that thing, throw those things. Why do you want them? And like any great fairy tale, this becomes a parable because then uh, the two older brothers come in front of the princess and the princess is tired of smart, tired of good looking. And then comes this guy with these things that are so odd, that are intriguing. And he wins the hand of the princess. And I think the way you go at a movie, the way you look at cinema and the way you look at life, the way I do it, is like that guy. I walk along a road and I pick up things that most people would leave on the floor. You know, and I pick up a musical and I pick up a little melodrama. I pick up a little, and, and I just instinctively think that this will go really well together because like any Mexican, you give me 20 objects, I'll make an altar. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can put them together in a way, in an arranging that makes sense. That's the way I do it instinctively. Then intellectually, you, I can, we can talk for a good chunk of time about how you execute them stylistically. But the, the initial instinct is that. Is, uh, this, will, this will go really well together. It's sort of the umami, the umami flavor of cinema, where you go, this needs a little more bitter, this needs a tart, or whatever. You, you try to find that, that thing that makes the flavor you want. Was was there a, a sparking dead bird that you picked up along the way that 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 pushed yeah. this to the front of your plate? What was the what was the thing? Well, that... it was when when I had breakfast with Daniel Krauss in 2011, and he said I have this idea about a janitor. Because look, super secret government facility, amphibian man kept in a cylinder. I've done twice, you know, amphibian man in love. I've done once in hell with you, but what made it spark was in 2011 that idea that that Krauss said I was I was shooting Pacific Rim initial footage and he said uh, janitor finds amphibian man in super secret well government facility and takes it home and I thought oh that's the way janitor because what you want is to know I remember that issue when I was a kid who is the tailor for bad you know what I'm saying? Who makes the Batman suits? That's, you know, who clean, who changes the oil on the Batmobile? You know what I'm saying? Who, uh, does Master Bruce have nice habit, toilet habits? <laughs> you know, does he flush? He forgets to flush? Is Alfred going, Master Wayne, not again. Like, <laughs> put the lid down. <laughs> you know, those are the things that make it alive. Alejandro Iñárritu calls it the, the, the fat, the little, the, the traces of fat in the meat. And I think that's <clears throat> the, 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 the grim. The grim is what makes something good. You know, if you think about it, 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 goes, it, it goes back to saying is the essence of wabi-sabi, the aging, the weathering, the, 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 everyday nature of the degradation that makes something gorgeous even better. George knew it when he first weathered Star Wars, you know, first time. I mean, that's the genius of George. Lucas comes and says, my universe will look used. And he transforms the history of cinema, honestly. Ridley does it, Ridley Scott does it later with Blade Runner, you know, in a, in a bigger way. 
But that's the thing. How do you weather this 1954-style monster movie? You go through the janitor. No. The people that are picking the trash, that are unstocking, they're trying to lift a piece of chewing gum from the floor. You know what I'm saying? They clean the toilets and say, who the fuck peed over? You know, they could pee in the goddamn, you know. They are scientists and agents, but they pee all over the floor, you know, and they please flush. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what makes the fusion of the extraordinary and the ordinary. You know, there is a, an ancient river god, an elemental river god. It's not a monster, it's a river god that lives in the Amazon, and then you put him in your bathtub. That's the fusion of those two things is what makes it interesting. It's one of my favorite Disney princess movies now. Yes, it is. Because the princess is not completely, uh, 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 doesn't depend on purity and perfection, you know? And aristocracy. Yeah, or aristocracy, you know? Well, one, one last thing for you. So you, you've talked a little bit about what you're doing in this, in this off year before you start prepping something in September. Yeah. Is there anything else beyond what you've talked about publicly that, that you are interested in doing in, in marbling your meat, as it were. Yeah, well, I would be completely stupid if I mentioned it. <laughs> People already think I have 20 projects, <laughs> which is, by the way, an illusion. Yeah. You know, be, why? Because everybody works like that. Uh, the amount of, I, I mean, if you go to the, to, the, to the movies that people get attached to and never do, whether it's Fincher doing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Gore Verbinski doing Bioshock, we all have those. You know, the problem with me or the, 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 the specific nature of me is that for some reason they get reported more. Yeah, you, you, you get enthusiastic about something that is a maybe and yeah, somebody and reports it as a certainty. Says, oh, you know, he never did that one. I, well, okay, well, Del Toro well, promised me that this was yeah, happening. That, that, this was that happening. Fucker. And, 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 and you never do. I mean, it's always properties that somebody has. You, some of them develop, some of them don't. Yeah. Is there anything that, uh, I mean, you mentioned Gore's Bioshock, you mentioned all these projects. Is there anything that sticks out to you? You can go back to the whole, the history. Like the first thing that I brought up to you was a, was a Hitchcock movie that he never made. Is there any of these unproduced movies that, that you sit in, that aren't yours that you sit and go like that? That's something that, that like the world is, is lesser for not having. Oh, both of them. Yeah. I would love to see Fincher do 20,000 Leagues mm. Under the Sea. Yeah. And I would love to see Verbinski do Bioshock. I, you know, Gore Verbinski, to me, right now, mm. uh, is a, a storyteller of the highest. And, uh, you know, a guy that doesn't get his due. Uh, I know he's an incredibly successful and financially successful guy, but I do think he's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful all all-encompassing great storyteller. I, I love his uh, minor stuff, quote-unquote, like The Weatherman. And I think it's a very efficient, beautifully told little tale that shows that he can handle that and then huge scope. So I have great admiration for him. And Fincher, of course, is a movie machine, you know? But I would love to, to see both of them. I mean, I, I think, look, uh, I don't know. I think uh, I think the one thing that comes with uh, having done it for a quarter of a century, there is a sense of balance that you get that, you know, you, you substitute enthusiasm 
for genuine passion that is much more calm. So I, I get less excited, but I get more deeply committed mm. to my own stuff and to the interest of seeing other people's stuff. You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't know yeah. what you It does. It's a, it's a quieter form of, of commitment. Mm. I, I do, I, I do have a, a something that I want to ask you about since you know so much about Hitchcock stuff uh one of the very first inklings of me wanting to pursue talking about unmade projects was talking to roger avery um and uh, uh about i forgot what movie i brought up to him but he said oh you know the most fascinating one for me is a movie that hitchcock never made and i haven't been able to actually figure out if this is true or if he was just spreading some you know some something he'd heard but he was saying that that hitchcock was developing a um a uh Around the opening of Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It was called The Blind Man. The, the what? The Blind Man. The Blind Man. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and it was supposed to be like a, a wrong man style movie that took place in the in park. Disneyland, yeah. And that that uh, Disney. He, he could never do it, no. Yeah. Because there was I, a murder in the park. I, right? I think it, yeah. I think it was called The Blind Man. I'm huh. 90% sure it was. So that's a real thing. Man. Oh, yeah. Completely. It's one of his. Is it a projects. script you have seen? <laughs> No, the one I'm curious about is, <clears throat> I think it's called Daddy's Gonna Hunting, mm. the original screenplay that I think Larry Cohen wrote and Hitchcock was going to do, and <laughs> he never did. That I'm very curious about. A Larry about. Cohen Hitchcock. Uh, uh, yeah, Larry Cohen is an interesting well, guy. Well, there, there was, there was a, I think Seven Arts made a movie called Daddy's Gonna Hunting. No, right? I think that they made it. They made it, yeah. But they made a different version of the screenplay that was, uh, that was done by, now I don't know if this is, uh, Hitchcock being nice to Larry Cohen, but uh, uh, allegedly he told Larry Cohen, uh, "This screenplay is so perfect that you don't need me." <laughs> now that may be that may, that may be that's a blow off. <laughs> uh, that may be a, a version of it's not you. Thanks for me. lunch. You yeah. got the check, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but 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 it may. I, and, and all joking aside, judging from the fact that uh, what what's the movie Larry did that is amazing called uh, is it called Perfect Strangers? About the the guy that kills a guy in an alley and mm. a kid sees That's the awesome. murder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Larry is an amazing. Uh, has some, uh, has had some of the most amazing ideas in genre. Yeah. So that one I'm curious about. Interesting. All right. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Thank I'll you show so you some, much for some stuff somewhere. Yeah. 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 Well, who knows where? Yeah, but, well, <laughs> Behind a secret passage. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>